The main point is there's a lot more going on than just a simple net zero equals job losses and it's disappointing when it's framed as that. Welcome to The Jolt. It's the 29th of January. I'm your host, Sam Morgan. Coming up later, I'm going to be looking at how steelmaking is set to become a proving ground for just transition policies. I'll be comparing the fortunes of a plant in my homeland, Wales, with that of an exciting new development in Sweden. Just a reminder that The Jolt is going to be free to air until the end of this week. After that, only Monday and Friday's episodes will be available to non-members. Worry not though, as joining our growing community has never been easier or more rewarding. Check the links in the show notes for details on how you can sign up and start taking part in the energy transition debate. On with the show now, let's take a look at what has been happening in the world of energy and climate. Russia's plans to pump more fossil gas from Siberia to China via a new mega-pipeline appear to be on the back burner. Construction work on the 3,500-kilometre-long power of Siberia 2 pipe hasn't begun, and the two sides have not even agreed on the fundamentals of the project, according to the Financial Times. Global gas prices suggest that Russia wants a better deal than the one it got for its other pipeline, Power of Siberia 1. However, China knows, just like the rest of us, that Russia's gas market has shrunk considerably following its invasion of Ukraine in 2022, so Beijing could be waiting Moscow out. Maybe China realises it doesn't actually need Putin's gas. Its national regulator has revealed some key energy stats for 2023. Nearly 217 gigawatts of solar and 76 gigawatts of wind power were added to the grid last year. In fact, as Bloomberg points out, That solar figure is more capacity than the United States, the world's second largest solar market, has installed to date in history, let alone in 2023. As is always the case with China, there's bad with the good. 55 gigawatts of thermal power, mostly coal and gas, but also some biomass, was added to the energy system as well last year. There's yet more trouble in the Red Sea after Yemen's Houthi rebels attacked another commercial ship. This time an oil tanker was set on fire by a missile strike. The British flagged vessel was targeted by the group in response to what it calls American-British aggression. Oil prices increased slightly by 1% as tensions across the Middle East continue. Estonia and Finland continue to investigate why an electricity cable linking the two countries failed late last week. The 660-megawatt, 170-kilometre-long cable went offline on Friday. Although there were initial fears that another piece of energy infrastructure had been put out of action by external forces, early findings suggest that a manufacturing defect may well be to blame. Finland's grid operator says the fault appears to be near the Estonian side. The cable is a crucial link between the Finnish and Baltic states in general, and may be out of commission until the end of February. Scotland produced all of its power, plus a nice surplus, from green sources in 2022, according to its government. New figures reveal that 113% of Scotland's electricity demand was satisfied by renewables. Newly built capacity and a reduction in energy demand help Scotland cross the threshold. Long-held government policy aims for Scotland's energy sector to become a net exporter of green power, and 2022's achievement is a crucial milestone on that journey. 
Energy Secretary Neil Gray warned that grid constraints now risk curtailing progress if they aren't fixed soon. Spain plans to spend 2.4 billion euros on expanding Madrid's international airport, the government revealed on Friday. 60 million passengers used Madrid Barajas last year, and the expansion will increase that figure to around 90 million. Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez said the aim is to make Madrid one of the largest airports in Europe and consolidate its role as the number one link with Latin America. The aviation industry unsurprisingly welcomed the move, while Spain's left-wing party, with which Sánchez struck a governance deal late last year, called it economic and ecological nonsense. The party reminded Sánchez in a statement that their coalition deal included a promise to ban short-haul flights that can be replaced by rail services. We actually did an entire episode of The Jolt on that policy. I'll link to it in the show notes. Please do give it a listen. An offshore hydrogen production pilot project was a roaring success, according to the firm that spent the last year testing the system off the French coast. A one megawatt electrolyzer spent 14 months out at sea next to a wind turbine, and according to Life, the company behind the scheme, it survived everything that was thrown at it. That included 10 metre high waves and 150 kilometre an hour winds. The project also met expectations linked to energy efficiency, versatility and responsiveness. The success means that the next stage, a 10 megawatt system capable of producing 4 tonnes of green hydrogen per day, can go ahead. The aim is to have it operational by 2026. Airbus has signed an agreement with a renewable fuel company to start planning and rolling out hydrogen infrastructure. As part of its bid to build green aircraft, the plane maker has penned a memorandum of understanding with Q-Air, which will involve developing a sustainable fuel production centre in the French region of Occitanie. The collaboration will include the manufacturing of green hydrogen and its eventual delivery to airports. And the world's largest cruise ship set sail from Miami this weekend after being launched by football star Lionel Messi. 365 metres long, 250,000 tonnes, 1.65 billion euros to build and 7,600 passengers. The icon of the seas is great for stats. It might not be so great for the environment. Powered by liquefied natural gas, the Leviathan vessel runs the risk of being a huge source of climate-bashing methane emissions according to the International Council on Clean Transportation. However, the ship's operator does say that it is 24% more efficient than the level required by the International Maritime Organization. Tune back into the Jolt on Wednesday, when I will hopefully bring you more on shipping and what one of the world's largest shipping companies is doing to go green. That's all of your news updates for today. Now let's move on to a closer look at the story of the moment. Steelmaking is an important cog in the energy transition. The global industry's contribution to carbon emissions outstrips that of most countries. For every tonne of steel produced, more than a tonne of CO2 is released into the atmosphere. There's also a social element to this. More than 6 million people, that's the entire population of Denmark and then some, work in the global steel industry. Decarbonisation policies have to be well designed or essential jobs can easily be lost and entire communities damaged by the fallout. Unfortunately, that looks like it's about to happen in one place that's close to my heart. In 
In South Wales, the Port Talbot Steelworks employs 4,000 people in an area that is one of Europe's poorest. 2,800 of those jobs will be lost this year after the plant's operator, Tata Steel, decided that it's no longer financially viable. The two main blast furnaces will be shut down in 2024, and a brand new electric arc furnace will be built in their stead. Safety and financial concerns mean that the old furnaces cannot keep working while the new facility is built, according to Tata. This has led some to falsely suggest that these awful job losses have actually been caused by decarbonisation policies, that poor communities will pay the price for net zero. I found out from Ros Bullied, Research Director at the Green Alliance, a UK think tank, why that's so far from the truth. Well, as you said, the plant is outdated. There are two blast furnaces. One needs to be relined kind of now and the other one in about five years time. So the plant does need a major overhaul, come what may. And around the world, we are actually gradually seeing steel move away from the coal used in blast furnaces in that approach. If we were to invest in that now and double down, regardless of kind of emissions targets in the UK, we wouldn't be future-proofing that plant appropriately. People are asking increasingly for steel when they buy steel that's clean. We have EU introducing border taxes for, for steel as well. So it's Essentially, to future-proof the plant, it has to, globally, in the global market, it actually has to move towards being low carbon. I mean, the question then is how you move it towards low carbon. And there are certainly concerns as to how Tata's done that. It's a terrible story for the kind of local communities and for the jobs and the people working at Tata. I think the problem is the plan more than the decarbonisation itself, um, which is which is a sensible move to kind of future-proof the plant. There are also lots of advantages of going primarily for electric car furnace around the fact that we have so much domestic scrap supply anyway. The main point is that there's a lot more going on on than just a simple net zero equals job losses and it's disappointing when it's framed as that. This is more than an issue about not thinking about the timeline and planning properly for what is it was always going to be like an eventual outcome where the world like you say was moving this way the market is moving this way and is it right in saying then that if these kind of decisions had been thought about five years ago or insert number here we wouldn't be here. Yeah, we could have had a much more sensible managed transition to a low carbon steel work, retained people in in related jobs. For instance, you could have more downstream processing to make steel plate for wind turbines. The UK is kind of a bit lacking in that space. You could also have more comfortably, certainly if you started five years ago, trialed hydrogen and known if that would actually be a good way of making the virgin steel, which Tata needs for um, its automotive and packaging customers. But yeah, we could have we could have sort of been in a position to make a really sensible decision about that. And that would also have been a kind of for more employment as well. As ever the case, it would have been great to start from this point five years ago. Unfortunately, we didn't. But even then, with the decision being taken now, we would still have preferred a slightly different decision that was more phased as well and also looked at kind of, from the government side, more supporting policies to encourage Tata itself to invest rather than these kind of behind closed door deals, um, which we're seeing at Scunthorpe and, Tar- and Port Talbot without unions and others but even being involved, which is really unhelpful. I mean, steel plants obviously all over the place around the world this will be an issue for all of them at some point if they haven't already made this switch to to decarbonized power. Is there any kind of lesson then that can be properly learned from this ongoing case? Is it purely to plan this better and earlier? Or is there even more they can do? There's a planning question. And when the, the most successful examples of people moving away, say, from coal-fired um, power plants and coal mining around the world, it's a kind of five, 10-year process. Um, so there's definitely a kind of planning and an involving um, consultation of communities and people, um, employees' point in this as well. But I think it's also, yeah, it's it's taking a kind of proper 
economy level picture of this as well. Global geopolitics is changing. And where do you want to be reliant on to get your materials? Do you want to be importing from Russia or can you avoid that? And who are your kind of allies? So there's there's some conversations there about just thinking strategically in a sort of a geopolitical way and trade trade fashion. I mean, just, just around the world, we are already seeing China plan to peak its steel in 2030 as well, its steel emissions. So it's this is a kind of global conversation. And the more we can collaborate in the technology, that's also helpful. I think the other thing is just in the UK context, it's this steel is a kind of early bellwether and it's something that's very emotional and culturally important but actually we need to be thinking about what the next sectors are not all transformations of this kind will involve job losses uh, or quite the same sort of job losses and there's plenty of opportunities that a new green economy can offer unfortunately they often sound like jam tomorrow until government actually invests and, and kind of makes those jobs happen so i think that within the uk it's also being very careful about what's going to happen where and and providing those really good quality jobs that are pretty similar so in port albert thinking about the the process Processing, steel processing jobs or other kind of industrial sites that could be in a cluster on the old steelwork sites, for instance. Dragging steelmaking into the 21st century is not an easy or a painless process. There's no magic way to do this without going through a certain amount of hurt. As always at Foresight, we don't just bring you the problems, we aim to bring you a bit of hope and actual solutions as well. A project in Sweden's far north definitely falls into that category. H2 Green Steel wants to make steel using green hydrogen and recently secured billions of euros in financing and secured agreements with clients that want to buy their wares. It's all rather promising. I spoke with Kaiser rutberg valgren head of H2's hydrogen business, to learn more about this exciting project. So basically, we could say that everybody knows it's a huge difference to almost close your fin- financing and actually do it in terms of project finance. So what we have done now is to sign the big financing package for our first phase in our Boden plant. So Boden is a small city in the north of Sweden. Uh, so we have what we need now to actually reach commercial commissioning and deliveries of uh, about 2.5 million ton of green steel, 2.1 million ton of green iron, and about 700 megawatt or 100,000 ton of green hydrogen. So it means that we have that in place. And honestly, without closing this financing now, we could not reach start a production in accordance to our plan, which is end of, of 2025, early 2026. We also hope in a more kind of a holistic perspective or global view that our way of, of structuring this financing package could be a blueprint, um, not only for our projects around the world, because we do have other projects, but also for other hard to bait sectors, a, a blueprint to how you can finance green fields around the world. Could you maybe give uh, the listeners a sense of the milestones and the timeline for this now? You've got the money, you've got the demand. Because of, of us now signing this big financing package, we can move from what we've done now for about one and a half years in terms of the site. We have prepared the grounds. We've done a lot of groundwork. This is a huge area. I mean, it's about uh, three, four hundred hectares. So I worked on the ground preparation. And uh, also late last year, we, we started raising the first deal. Uh, so we are moving from horizontal to, to vertical uh, construction, you could say. And this will continue then uh, during the year. So really focus on, on ramping up construction and civil works. We could also, in terms of activity uh, uh, on the plan or on the site, we will, today we have about 300 workers on site. And we expect that number to increase to about 700 uh, within just a few months. 
And during next year, we expect to peak in terms of construction workers around 4,000 workers on site. So there will be more and more activity in the region. And we expect then to start the machines. Um, so first commissioning and then turning over to commercial deliveries end of 25 and early 26. So 2026 will be then about really turning this into a commercial volumes delivering to on our promises to the customers. I should also say in parallel, what is really, really crucial to make this work is that we are working closely with a local community, the municipality on adjacent infrastructure, such as rail, water and so forth, but also, of course, schools, housing, because we will need in the future about 1500 direct workers to this plant which will also generate a demand for other type of, of uh, support functions and businesses. So we do expect a, a big inflow of people to, to the municipality, and we are working closely together with the community to make that work. How important then would you say that this kind of liaison with the local communities has been into getting that financial and public support? Is it all part of that package of making sure that these kind of factors are taken into account when you are planning, constructing and operating such a, such a big site? No, I mean, it, it is fundamental. That's kind of where we started. We, and that's where we start in all our projects around the world. We have to understand the local community. We have to understand how we can not only be compliant to what is in the permitting process, but really understand how we can contribute to making their lives a better place and so forth. So we do it together with them. So it has been fundamental, of course, in the permitting process, but to attract the right talent and people to our future plant. As an example of that, we could say when we had our groundbreaking ceremony, uh, we didn't want to have uh, this big, uh, like the king or someone like that coming to do the groundbreaking. We asked the local community and our workers to, to bring their, their children because we really wanted to be this, to, to do this together with the community and for future generations. As I said, this story is a bit of a personal one for me. I'm from South Wales. My grandfather worked all his life in the Ebervale Steelworks, itself now long closed. Steelmaking was a safety net of sorts for communities back in the 1980s, when coal mine closures in Wales also threatened to destroy the livelihoods of thousands of workers. The steel mills were able to offer jobs to a lot of people who were left unemployed by the closures. History, unfortunately, now seems to be repeating itself. Working class people are bearing the brunt of a transition, which has to happen, but absolutely does not have to happen in this way. Here's hoping that, at the very least, the Port Talbot closures will show governments and communities and companies how all of this should really be done. Many thanks for joining me today. Kira will be with you tomorrow, so tune back in then. Foresight's brand new website and app is up and running and it looks really great. If you'd like to join our growing community and get involved in the vibrant conversations going on about the energy transition, please consider becoming a member today. As a little reward for sticking with us to the end of the episode, follow the link in the show notes. It'll get you one month's free access to all of our fantastic journalism and podcasts. Thanks once again to everyone at Foresight for helping to make the jolt possible and shout out to Mute Island for providing the theme music. Until next time, thanks for being a part of the jolt. Bye.